Great, we are just getting set up. Little, little different for me today, going straight into the phone. That's fun. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Mike Swanson. I'm one of the elders here at Wellspring. I'm excited to open up the scripture with you today and, and to think and learn about uh, <laughs> some pretty wild stuff that Jesus did uh, a long time ago. But before we do that, uh, I, I want to actually start with the USA Today. <laughs> you know, because naturally when you're opening up the scriptures, USA Today is like the place where you really want to dive in. Uh, in. In 2019, uh, the USA Today published an article entitled 20 Predictions for 2020. Uh, here's what people said would happen by this year. So it was an article that was just kind of collecting a bunch of different future predictions that people had given at various points throughout American history. And in it, author Grace Houck listed 20 predictions that were offered like I said, at various points. Uh, a few of the more humorous predictions include things like uh, computers will be invisible, made in the year 1999, uh, that it will be normal to retire at age 70. That was made in 1994. As I think about retirement in a little while, I don't know that 70 will be early enough. Um, and then number three, cars will be able to go months without refueling. Uh, that was in 1997. Uh, that is not the case as we approach $5 a gallon. Uh, super fun, right? Uh, but some of the predictions were interesting because they were spot on, including things like, we will have everyone personal computer companions. That was made in 1999 by Bill Gates. Uh, another one that I thought was super interesting, this was in 1997, that Boris Johnson would lead Brexit. Um, if you know what Brexit is, then that feels like a really weird thing to predict in 1997, but they got it, right? Uh, for most of these predictions, we get the sense that the experts who were making them were simply taking like what was right in front of them and doing their best to project outward, whether it was 5, 10, 15, 20 years, what things would be like if we got really good or really advanced in a particular area. Uh, one of the predictions, though, that seemed to me at least most miles off was the last one named in the article. It was made in 1968 by a political science professor at MIT named Ithiel de, uh, de Sola Pool. And he wrote, better communication, easier translation, and a greater understanding of the nature of human motivations would make it easier for people to connect across ethnic and national lines and concluding that by the year 2018, nationalism should be a waning force in the world. Uh, now, this is not me attempting to make a not-so-subtle commentary on like this country and its politics. That's not where I want to go. I'm simply trying to point out that it seems, in hindsight, a little naive to believe that greater connection would lead to less conflict. This one seems to buck the trend in projecting forward what we would hope to see. And that is something I've noticed to be pretty commonplace for like futuristically minded people that they're uh, whether they consider themselves under the moniker futurists or otherwise they, they tend to be pretty optimistic about what could be coming down the pipeline uh, sometimes something comes along though that completely smashes what we think is possible sometimes that's really really bad and our optimism gets ground to a halt when we come face to face with true evil in the world. I remember being in a school when the Twin Towers were attacked on September 11th. Um, when we, I was in sixth grade at the time, and when we finally found out what was going on, I mean, I remember seeing friends, classmates, just like every period, their 
were at least two or three announcements where the office would call down to our classroom and say, hi, so-and-so, can you please send such-and-such to the office? Their parents are here to pick them up. By the end of the day, I was maybe one of maybe 30% of the school that remained. Um, and when we finally found out what was going on, I remember all of the adults in my life were using words like unthinkable, and I could never imagine this happening. Um, who, who would have thought that something like that would have ever, ever happened? No one thought that that was possible. And other times, we are pleasantly surprised with what we don't see coming. Sometimes you don't see it coming, and it's brilliant. You find a $20 bill in your coat pocket, if you still use cash, that is. You discover a delightful little hole-in-the-wall restaurant that you never knew existed. You find out that a romantic interest shares mutual feelings with you. Listen, my, my point is simply this. We are a people who have a fairly stable set of what we think is possible. And then we project outward from there. But what, what happens when we encounter something that completely disrupts our imaginations and expectations? And today's text, the, the text that Elena just read, I think is actually a really good example of that. We're going to look at John 5, 1 to 18 in, in two movements today. Um, the first movement, I'd like for us to take a close look at the healing episode of this man. John, who is the author of this account, calls this story one of the seven signs and wonders within this gospel letter. John wants us to hear these stories because they, in his mind, will confirm for us that Jesus is both Christ and Lord. And Jesus' healing of this man is a story that John believes will call forth faith from within us, towards a man named Jesus. But the story John tells doesn't end with the healing of this man. John includes an interaction with the religious leaders after this healing. And in the second movement of this story, we see that that healing runs against the cultural grain of Jesus' time. And I want us to examine that because I think it offers us a new plausibility structure, a new way of imagining God and his kingdom and what they look like that, frankly, we desperately need. So let's start with the healing. We need to start with a little bit of context in order for, I think, this story to make sense to us. So the purpose of John's gospel account comes near the end of the letter. In chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. This, friends, is a persuasive attempt, and it begins with the first sentence of the letter and runs all the way throughout the rest of the text. John's letter is often divided into two separate sections. One is called the Book of Signs that houses six different signs and wonders, and the second is called the Book of Glory and tells mostly about Jesus' death, resurrection, and kind of what comes after. One of the predominant themes that John interweaves throughout his text is the interplay between the creation account and the new creation account, ebbing back and forth, each inbreaking towards one another. And John roots his prologue of the creation story and then gives us six examples of Jesus redeeming, healing, or otherwise restoring the sinful, frail, and broken creation into what we call, the New Testament says, is the new creation, the kingdom of heaven. Today's story, the story of this man being healed, is sign and wonder number three. The story is familiar to many people, 
uh, who have spent time in and around the church. And the plot goes like this. There's a pool located in Jerusalem called Bethsaida. It has a bunch of different names, one in Hebrew, one in Aramaic, one in Greek. And it's well known for its healing properties. And we get from the text, in some versions of the text at least, that the locals all knew about this. Like this was not something that was like the secret information of a select few, but that everybody who lived in Jerusalem knew about these pools. And what happened was when water bubbled up, the first person to make their way into the pool would be healed from whatever malady plagued them. The Jews believed that it was an angel of God who would stir the waters and that God's healing hand would reach down from heaven and touch that fateful person. But interestingly enough, Bethsaida, which is the name of the pool, also had a healing reputation among the, the worshiping pagans of the city. The difference was that the pagans accredited to the healing miracles to one of the many gods that they served. That They just imported this idea and said, it's one of our gods who is healing us. And in verse 2, the text tells us about five porticos or porches or roofs uh, that are located around this pool. And we think, at least when I say we, I mean people who are smarter than me uh, and have studied kind of the archaeology of the place. Uh, They think that these porches were built around the pools in order to provide temporary shelter for the sick gathered there. They were large covered walkways to keep people out Uh, of the weather and the hot sun and whatever was beating down on them. And these pools had not one, not two, but five of them surrounding them. It helps us get a sense that this this area felt more like a large open-air triage unit than a small cul-de-sac. So if you think about what the biggest hospital would be that you've ever been to, walking into that triage unit with the, the wounded, the sick, laying, waiting for their turn to be healed, There was five porches littered with people who were waiting for their healing. And so when Jesus comes to Bethsaida during one of the Jewish feasts on the Sabbath, no less, he finds a man who has been infirm for 38 years. One commenter suggests that the inclusion of these particular details about the man suggests that that his ailment was unlikely something that was trauma-related. Like it was not an accident that he had where he fell or he twisted his ankle or he broke something, but was instead what we would today label as a degenerative disease. We We get the sense from the text that this man grew frail to the point where he was simply unable to stand up. And as you consider the explanation that we read about in verse 7, He himself tells us that he can't even make it to the pools and has been unable to do so for years. It seems that this man is entirely helpless. And as we're talking about this at our connection group on Thursday night, Lisa Kozlicki, whose background is graduate work in physical therapy, she knows a thing or two about the healing of bodies. She shared with us that 38 years worth of infirmity sucks, obviously, But it would have meant that this man's muscles would have experienced an enormous amount of atrophy to the point where they were likely unusable. Harry Askew had a cast on his arm for two months and currently needs to retrain one thumb to touch one of his other fingers. That's just two months. If you multiply that by 240, which is how long it would take you to get to 38 years, you've got the idea that this man, even if he could stand, wouldn't have the muscle or the ligament support to do much else. The Greek word used to describe him is the word asthenia, 
which has two uses in the New Testament. I'm going to focus on one. When it's being used to describe a person's body, the idea is that these people can't stand up. I mean, it's, we see it's the same root word that we get the word anesthesia from. It's for a reason. It's because it makes people unable to stand. Making sense in that his story in verse 7, he hasn't been healed because somebody always gets to the pool before he does. When the waters bubble, it's not that he doesn't want to go. He can't because he can't stand up. It brings to mind the picture of a man who is shaking as he tries to stand. He falls over before he reaches the pool and maybe hurts himself in the process because he can't stand. And so, Unknown to this man, a stranger approaches him and asks him the most ridiculous of questions. Do you want to be made well? I mean, obviously the man does. He's, he's at the pool. He's waiting for it. He's been laying there for 38 years, waiting for the day when the waters would bubble and he could stumble his way into salvation. And of course he wants to be healed. But don't miss this. What this man thinks is that the only pathway towards healing is through the waters of the pool. He's been lame for this long, and this impassable barrier between him and health is his ability to get into the water. And so he responds to the stranger, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. When I hear him read this, I hear a defeated man who knows what he wants and just simply can't get there. In this man's mind, healing is impossible without the waters of the pool. But he also doesn't outright ask this stranger for help. Do you know anyone who's done that? Is that maybe even you? I know it resonates with me. Is it possible that this man has been lame for so long that he's basically given up any hope that someone would come and help him into the pool? Maybe he's lost the will to even try. Maybe he's volunteering his greatest need to a stranger with the hope that someone might take pity on him. And maybe he doesn't also want to get his hopes up too high because 38 years is a long time to have been passed over by a bunch of strangers. So what does Jesus respond to? Verse 8, Jesus said to the man, stand up, take your mat, and walk. Now, again, put yourself in the pool that day just around looking at this scene. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a stranger talking to a man who's been lying there for 38 years, ask him, do you want to be made well? And then the man says, well, I can't because of good reasons. (laughs) And then the man says to him, stand up, take your mat and walk. Do you think that the man, his first response was, yeah, I wish it were that easy, buddy. Can you relate to this? Look, one of the stories that's far too common in church circles is that the person suffering under depression or anxiety is being reminded about God's promises to us. I remember during my dad's viewings after he passed, for his fu- before his funeral, my family stood uh, near the casket receiving those who came to pay their respects for him and for our family. We received probably 350 people over the course of a couple days. And as people passed through, they obviously wanted to offer comfort and hope to me, to the rest of our family. And so they say, said things like, he's in a better place, or he's definitely in heaven, or he's not suffering. 
Look, my dad loved Jesus. He was a faithful servant to the king, and I have no doubt of where I will see him next. I have no doubt about that. Whether I would meet him again with our restored bodies was not the thing that was causing my sadness. I was sad because I couldn't talk to my dad anymore. It wasn't that easy to just flip the switch from my dad is dead to now I'm fine because he's in a better place. That's not how sin and death work. We sit in them because they're hard. So if you're overhearing this conversation between Jesus and this man, what do you think you would say? If it were me, I'd probably laugh at the absurdity of the command, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. But what does the scripture say? Verse 9, at once the man was made well, and he took up his mat, and he began to walk. I mean, candidly, I'm taken aback at reading that. That's what happened. It's almost a caricature of a story. I mean, Jesus meets the most done-in person at the pool, and he just heals them. This, it, it's not over time, but instantly, at once, immediately, the man gets up and walked. And I'll admit that the part of me that's heard all of these stories before needs to slow down in order to really comprehend the severity of what has just happened in this text. This Jesus does indeed perform signs and wonders that our modern brains receive with skepticism. This is a genuine, genuine miracle, family. And Jesus does it in public, plain as day. As far as we know, this man and likely the crowds around him think that their only chance of healing is getting to pull, getting into the pool at the right time. But just like the ordering and the filling of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus, who is the word of God, speaks over the man and he becomes the epicenter of the inbreaking of the new creation. The word comes into the world and heals it with nothing more than a command. Let there be... Stand up, take up your mat, and walk. Both the Jews and the Gentiles bear witness to the healing of this man. Theologian N.T. Wright has this to say about this episode, and I love this, so I'm just stick with me as I work through this. He writes, as, ma- as with many of the gospel stories, particularly in John, what Jesus does fulfills the hopes and the longings of the Jewish world expressed as they were in various ways, not least by the great festivals that we read about in verse 1. Here, however, Jesus seems to be fulfilling the hopes and the half-formed beliefs of the pagan world as well. Part of the point of the gospel is that if salvation is of the Jews and if Jesus is bringing that salvation, it must spread out from the Jews to embrace the wider world. The messianic hope that's anticipated in the healing in Isaiah 35 is played out in front of the watching Jewish and Gentile worlds for everyone to see right in the pools of Bethsaida. The announcement of the kingdom of God comes through this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and is demonstrated in the most dramatic way. Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Wright again says about the kingdom, it bursts through into the present world, bringing healing and new possibilities, and the old creation realizes that this is what has been intended all along. The man gets up and walks, and Jesus completely shatters the expectations both of this man, the crowd, and the audience of John's gospel account of what is possible according to the the kingdom of heaven and of King Jesus. Now, 
I think that if this story ended right here, that if John just said, this was great, sign number three, and then moved on to tell the rest of the gospel story, none of us would bat an eye because it's wild. It shows off the power of Jesus in the most beautiful ways. A man who has been lame for nearly four decades stands up at the command of God and carries his mat out of the triage center. Case closed, move on. But John takes it a step further. He tells us about what happens to the man after he walks away. Verses 9 and 10. Now that day was a Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. Okay. Just, just want to pause here for a minute. I want to point out how strange of a response this is, at least for us to hear. So import all of the miraculous nature of what God has just done in this man's life. It's incredible. Everyone knows that this man was lame. And here he is walking, and not just kind of walking, but walking carrying a mat. What do you think your reaction would be to seeing that? I don't know, maybe something along the lines of like, oh my God, you're healed. Or how about like, what happened? Yes, why isn't he dead? Instead, some people see him carrying his mat and choose to call him out on it. What gives? Doesn't this seem like a little bit of a lower priority than the man who couldn't walk for 38 years getting up and carrying his mat? This feels like the biggest um actually of all time. It doesn't make sense to us because we don't know about the offense that this man caused by carrying his mat on the Sabbath. So let's talk a little bit about the Sabbath. We need to start with understanding a little bit about the Sabbath if we're going to make sense of this. So let's start in the beginning. Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3. This is what it says. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. By the seventh day, God completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from the work of his creation. This, friends, is the beginning of the biblical story just after God has finished forming and filling the whole of the creation. He looks at it and he finds it shalom, meaning that everything is as it should be. The work is finished, so what's the logical thing to do? Rest. God rests because the work is finished. And the writer tells us that God calls this day holy because it is a day of rest. And we are to remember that the work is done. Fast forward quite a while to the story when Israel has just come out of slavery in Egypt. God's rescued them and he's giving them what we call today the Ten Commandments. These are both to be a signal to the rest of the world that Israel is God's people But they're also given to help reshape the society of Israel. They've just spent 400 years in captivity. They don't know what it means to be a people anymore. And so God tells them, this is what the shape of your society will look like. And in Exodus 20, verses 18 to 11, commandment number four, God speaking through Moses says this, Remember to dedicate the Sabbath day. You are to labor six days and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the foreigner who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days, and he rested on the seventh day. 
Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. God is speaking through Moses in this passage. And he's reminding his people that God created his people good and to bear his, his image, specifically through their work. They are created good to join God in his work. And therefore, when God says that the day is holy, the, the day of rest is holy, we must remember the holiness of God on the day of rest. We bear God's holy image when we work, but also when we rest. And that means that the Sabbath is not merely a good suggestion for a better life. We honor the Sabbath in the same way that we honor God. It is a gift and it reveals to us something of God's holiness. Fast forward a little bit longer. Moses is getting ready to lead the people of God into his, uh, God's inheritance for them, into the promised land, Deuteronomy 5. It's a restatement, a reshaping of the Ten Commandments again, reminding them when you enter the land, this is what you will do. So this is Deuteronomy 5, verses 12 to 15. Be careful to dedicate the Sabbath day as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your ox, your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the foreigner who lives within your gates, so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And that is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. God again is speaking through Moses to Israel as they are on the cusp of entering into the land, which will later become Israel. And Moses is reminding them of those Ten Commandments, and that to fulfill God's purpose of redeeming the whole earth, the whole of creation, they must be obedient to these words. And so as he gets to commandment number four, and he says mostly the same thing as when the command first came down from Mount Sinai in Exodus 20. But he adds an additional charge to remember the work that God had done by bringing them out of Egypt. The reverence for the holiness of the day is completely still there. But there's an added element of celebration for the work of God that's also baked into this commandment. Taken together, this very, very quick flyby of some texts about the Sabbath tell us that the people of God are commanded to both honor the Sabbath because God has declared it to be holy and to celebrate the Sabbath because of God's merciful work in their midst. To do this requires a very high view of the command to rest on the Sabbath. But we still haven't answered the question, what does rest look like? Well, the obvious answer here is don't work, right? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to read this text and conclude that God wants everyone in Israel to not just not work on the Sabbath. But there's still a question kind of hanging around in the back of my mind. What, what counts as work? What doesn't count as work? If we want to take the command seriously, I need to know what not to do and what to do, right? Well, turns out Israel thought the same thing. To answer that question, the religious leaders at the, at, during those times looked at the scriptures. There's a group of texts which grew up kind of surrounding the Hebrew Old Testament called the Talmud. And now, it wasn't on par with the scriptures, but it was more so an accepted commentary on the scriptures uh, that kind of got adopted as orthodox. It was their understanding of what it meant to fulfill them. Think about, it's like this. Think about like the rumble strips on a highway. 
When you start moving off the road, those rumble strips are there to alert you to your drifting in case you're not paying attention or nodding off to sleep, right? Ideally, you feel the strips and then you get back on track. The Talmud functioned in a very similar way for Israel. They were boundary lines that hedged the law so that even if you violated them, you still might be spared from violating the Mosaic law itself. And so the religious teachers read the story about God commanding Israel to build his mobile temple, this thing called the tabernacle. He, and he commands them to do a bunch of stuff except on the Sabbath day. And so the religious leaders take all of those things that they were commanded to do except on the Sabbath day, and they take an inventory of them, and they call those things work. They later come to be known uh, in the Talmud as the 39 Malacha. I hope I'm saying that right. My Hebrew is not great. But here's the thing. They're not just 39 tasks. They're 39 like, categories of work. They're types of work. And for example, like one of them is sowing seeds. Okay, So obviously the act of like planting seeds in the ground, that's great. That would fall under the, the malacha of sowing seeds. But there's other things included in that, like starting a loaf of bread, leavening a loaf of bread. This goes on for 38 other categories, one of which is the category of carrying anything. So this makes sense out of the holiness, right? That's why the religious leaders are so harsh on the man. Well, yeah, sort of. But there's still a little bit more cultural baggage. We've got to take one last step before we get the gravity of the situation. Okay. Audience participation. Who has heard of a group of people from the New Testament called the Pharisees? Show of hands. Yes. Okay, good. I love it. Do you know much about them? They have this reputation of in some ways, like being the bad guys of the New Testament. If you just read the New Testament, you'd be like, ah, the, the, the Pharisees are really the ones who got it wrong, and Jesus is fixing them, and that's great. That's not true, that's naive, but that's fine. Here's the thing. I think they're a little misunderstood. What they're known for is being about the obedience to the law. They're the people who are super strict. We have this term being pharisaical for people who want to follow the exact letter and get everything exactly right. But why? Why were they so adamant about the obedience to the law? Well, their reasoning goes like this. If you think back to the Babylonian exile that we read about in the fall uh, through our study of the book of Nehemiah, you remember that the reason that Israel was exiled was because of their breaking of the covenant promises with God, right? And it resulted in God setting another nation as rulers over Israel, literally taking Israel away from their land and making them slaves under the Babylonian empire. And in Jesus' time, Israel and the religious leaders are kind of looking around and thinking, well, look, we're like not totally free. I know that we're like back in the land, but like there's this guy named Caesar who's still ruling over top of us. So we haven't really figured this out. When are we going to actually get our land back? Because that's tied to God's faithful promise to us. Well, there was a super conservative faction that cropped up and basically said, we just need to get back to the way it was before when we observed the law. And the common belief for them was that if all of Israel would repent of their sins and observe the law for even one day, that God would restore Israel. In short, covenant obedience would cause God to come back to his people. So when the people saw uh, that others were openly violating the law, those people who believed that called them out. They strongly rebuked them. Add on to that the hedge of the Talmud and you get a pretty strict outlook on all of life. And so this conservative group 
comes to be known as the Pharisees. I just want to point out that their desire, I think, is actually really good. They want God to fulfill his promise to them. Like, that's what they're longing for. But they go a little bit, understatement, off track because they believe that it's within Israel's realm of responsibility to usher in God's kingdom as though that they were ever capable of making that happen. Covenant obedience, then, is seen as a means to a much greater fulfillment, what the New Testament calls the new creation or the kingdom of heaven. So the religious leaders don't just want to keep people under their thumb as a power play. I, I choose to believe that they genuinely want to see God come in his fullness and power to the restore of the creation. They just get the means wrong by which he's promised to do that. So you fast forward to this man who was healed, who was healed. Pick up again where our story started. When they see this man violating the Sabbath law, he is obviously transgressing against God. But he's also actively preventing, in their logic, God from restoring Israel. It's a really big deal, but also I think it humanizes this response a little bit. It's why I think they make such a big deal about him violating the law, the prohibition to work, by carrying his mat on the Sabbath. It's why when they find that man, instead of celebrating with him after walking for the first time in 38 years and rejoicing in God's mercy to him, they ask him why he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath day. I wanted to take the time to explain this about the Pharisees because, I don't know, maybe you're like me, but I can see myself in that response. So, there's a bit of an elephant in the room that I haven't addressed yet that I do want to talk about. And it's this. What do we do with verse 14? And it reads like this. Later Jesus found him, the man, in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, <laughs> evidently, Jesus connects sin by either omission or commission as potentially leading towards physical brokenness. I mean, this makes sense in some cases, right? We're taught in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that the physical act of murder is rooted in the hatred of one's heart. Hate for neighbor can very easily work its way out, out of our hands uh, like that of Cain, where we water the soil with our brother's blood. We don't need to think too much about the ways in which sin correlates with physical ailment in that respect, especially when we think about what it means for us to hate one another. But, but this text is, is a little bit different, isn't it? It feels closer to the, like, God is punishing you for sin by crippling you than anything else. Maybe that's just my reading. But is that what Jesus is saying here? Commenters think, and, and I happen to agree with this, that Jesus here is talking about a long-view approach. The worst fate that Jesus, I think, has in mind here isn't further bodily harm from God as a result of this man's sin, but instead looks at the second coming and the judgment of the day of the Lord. Those who were found not to be in Christ on that day suffer the eternal death apart from God. And here's, that's what I think Jesus has in view here. We see a few chapters later in John 9 that Jesus speaks about the link between sin and bodily punishment. The background is that there was a common belief that sin caused disease, especially during that time, that if you sinned, you would get leprosy or that you would, you know, something would happen to your body. If somebody was physically ill then, it meant that unrepentant sin, especially according to the Mosaic Law, was, prom was uh, featured prominently in their lives. So if you go to John 9, 1-3, Jesus passes by a man he was born blind. When he asked about what caused the man's blindness, Jesus replies, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. 
In other words, nothing caused the ailment, yet it was repurposed by God for his glory to be revealed through that man's healing. So what we can conclude about the relationship between sin and physical ailment from these two texts? Well, the first thing is just that I don't think there's a correlation between individual sin and physical malady. The lame man's sin did not cause him to go lame, nor did the blind man or his parents' sin cause him to go blind. I want to make sure that we distinguish, though, between individual sin and original sin here. Disease was not a part of God's good creation, period. We know this because when we read the end of the story in Revelation 21, it tells us that God will cure us from all disease in the new creation. So the disease that we experience in the here and now is a result of the chaos of sin, the sin that has distorted this world. God did not create us to bear disease. Because what did God create us with? He created us to be in shalom, as it should be. Secondly, Jesus teaches us that God heals and redeems those caught in sin and its curse. What we see in both of these passages, in John 5 and John 9, is Jesus' willingness to acknowledge the hurt or sin and subsequently heal or redeem it. We might be tempted to conclude that we're being punished for not only being holy or whole, but that it runs against the grain of these stories. These stories teach us that Jesus meets us in our sin, in our wounds, and indeed rescues us from them. So, in a closing note here, I just want to say about a word about the word salvation. If you hang around Christians long enough, you might learn that salvation means forgiveness for sin. The original Greek word is the word soteria. And in the ancient world, this was commonly associated with one occupation in particular, that of a physician. It was, intended, it was the intended result of a good physician that upon treating the patient, the physician would return the patient back to a previous state of health. It was also used to describe the state of affairs after achieving victory over enemies or deliverance from calamity. The word, in short, has a broad usage, but I want us to pick up on the key trajectory local to all of them here. There was a state of goodness which was compromised in some way, shape, or form, and in a later time, that goodness was eventually restored. This is the definition of soteria. I share this only to point out that sometimes we inadvertently believe a definition of salvation that is absolutely true, but it is too narrow in its scope. We see in this story about Jesus that salvation, in the sense that we've just defined, has come to a man who has been healed from his infirmity. That in itself is cause for rejoicing. But those who were charged to be on the lookout for Israel's Messiah missed the celebration because their imagination for what God would do to bring salvation to his people individually to this man and collectively to all of Israel and the rest of the world was just too small. As I was preparing for today, the question came to my mind, how much celebration have I missed out on because my ability to imagine God's salvation was too small? I've read all the stories about God's great works, and I've heard testimony after testimony of the same. But the cynic in me has a difficult time believing that God could bring salvation, whether healing or forgiveness, to me and the people in my life. As one of the signs that John points to given to help us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, I wonder if this story lives in our scriptures to help us remember that salvation comes in unexpected ways. And sometimes it comes after 38 years of waiting for the thing that is your best shot at healing, 
only to find that Jesus is the true and better healer. Maybe it comes after a lifetime devoted to studying the scriptures and looking for the Messiah only to find that he's the kind of God who heals on the Sabbath. Maybe it touches the parts of our lives we don't want to be healed or forgiven because it would require us to admit that we are indeed unwell and sinful. Maybe it offers a way forward that reignites our desire for holiness and for wholeness that we haven't had in a long time. I just want to leave you with a word from the Reverend Dr. Esau McCulley, and it's this. The resurrection changes our plausibility structures. What he's saying is that when Jesus left behind the tomb, it changes what we can expect from God. If you were to write down one thing that is really hard to trust God with, that he would do something to change right here and right now, what would it look like to look at that thing through the lens of this story? How might God need to change your or our imagination to begin the dangerous work of trusting that he heals and that he forgives, that he brings salvation to you and to the rest of the world? What brokenness or sin might you or someone you know have long suffered awaiting the bubbling pool that has seemingly never come? So I just want to leave us with this. Whatever that thing is, I want to invite you or or challenge you to actually be brave and write it down whether it's in a note on your phone or in your Bible or on a piece of paper, whatever it is. Can you the What's something that you have a hard time trusting that God will actually invade with a new creation and either forgive or heal you of? Look, you don't need to come to a place of trusting God with that right this second or today or this week. That's, that's okay. But... I think it's a good exercise in hope that we learn to name the things that seem impossible to change and simply ask God if he would give us a hope that changes what we believe to be possible. I just want to invite you to take 30 seconds and think. Ask the Holy Spirit what that thing would be, that he would bring to mind something for you to write down. And then let's take some time to ask God to change what we think is possible in those areas. That doesn't mean that he's going to heal it. It doesn't mean that he's going to change it right this second. But praise God if he does. So I just want to take 30 seconds of silence, do that, and then I'll pray, and if the worship team would come back up, we can keep moving.